This is EM Cases EM Quick Hits Podcast. Quick, let's get on with it. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the hosts or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the Institute nor Medicine Cases. Before we jump in, just a quick announcement that tickets for Podcast Camp go on sale August 31st at podcastcamp.org. Only 20 tickets are being sold because we want to give you as much individual guidance and feedback as possible as you begin to master your podcast. Now for some quick hits. First up is Swami with some advantages and limitations of intraosseous access. I-O, I-O, I-O. I can still remember the first time that somebody put an IO needle in my hand. I was a third year resident and we had a pretty sick kid. People had been fumbling around trying to get an IV in. And then one of the old school attendings drops a Jamshadi needle in my hand and said, put it in the tibia. And we put it in, resuscitated the kid and all ended up pretty well. And I remember falling in love with the device right there. This was the easiest thing I had ever done to gain access in a patient, especially when you have that kid who is crashing and just needs access so you can get started on that resuscitation. And of course, at the time, we didn't have the commercially available drills that we have today. And so if we wanted to use these in adults, we could, but it took a little bit more force to get those in. Once those drills came out, this all went away. The thought of not using an IO to me seemed kind of foreign. I can get this quick, easy access in immediately and I don't think twice about it. But as much as I love IOs, I think it's also important for us to look at the limitations of these devices when we're using them so we know how to use them, when to use them, and then also when to replace the IO with something else. The first rule that I have lived by with IOs is the sicker the patient, the more likely the IO is the answer. If the patient is really sick and crashing, I can get that IO in way faster than someone could put it in an intro or an IV or a central line. There's no resuscitation medication or blood product I can't give through the IO, and there's no risk of me getting an arterial stick where I then have to withdraw and reposition in order to get into a vein. In the patient with cardiac arrest, there's no question. Put the IO in and be done. Whatever resuscitation meds you need to give, give them through the IO. There's no reason to bother with a central line or an intro or an IV. And I feel the same way when I'm thinking about hemorrhagic shock. If I've got that trauma patient who's bleeding out, who's really sick in front of me, I'm going IO first. One of the limitations you do have to think about in trauma is you don't want to put this into a bone that is fractured proximally. That's not really going to help very much with getting whatever meds you want or blood products into the patient. But aside from that, these are great devices for acute resuscitation. You can give blood products through them. There is some literature that says that maybe you get a little more hemolysis. It doesn't seem that there's any data to tell us, though, that that affects clinical outcomes. So the IO is the way to go in the cardiac arrest, in the massively bleeding trauma patient for that immediate access. The other place where I find these to be really powerful is in that sick pediatric patient, just like the case that I had when I was a third year resident. The sicker that kid is, the more likely the IO is going to be really useful because kids can be really challenging to get access even when they're not sick and dying in front of you. So in the sick and dying kid, it is IO first. And what if you have a kid who is sick, but not immediately crashing in front of you? Well, I think here you can try to get an IV 
But the mantra we should have in our heads is one, two, IO. In the sick kid, you get two shots with an IV and then I'm putting in the IO. What I've seen many times, and I'm sure you've all seen it too, is someone saying, oh, I'm almost there. I've almost got that IV in. All of a sudden you're in 20, 30 minutes into taking care of that kid and you still don't have access. One, two, IO. You get two sticks and then I'm drilling the bone with the IO so we can get this kid resuscitated. Another important aspect to think about with IOs is location. Location is really important here. There's a lot of different places we can put these in. In kids, typically we're going proximal tibia, distal femur. You can go distal tibia as well. In adults, there's even more spots where these can go. In addition to the proximal tibia, the distal tibia, you can also put this in the proximal humerus, and that's actually a great spot to use these. One other place to think about putting these is in the sternum if you have a sternal IO device. You can't do this with the commercial drills, but there are devices that are specifically designed to put an IO in the sternum, and they are fantastic. The location is important because of the flow rate you get with that location. If we look in adults, there are some cadaver studies with pressure bags showing that the five minute bolus for an IO in the tibia is about 200 cc's, not bad. In the humerus, it's about 300 cc's, a little better. If you have one of those sternal IO devices, we can actually give about 500 cc's over five minutes with a pressure bag. So that is a lot of volume that we can give in a short period of time. And again, if volume is important specifically in the patient who's bleeding out, then you might wanna think about the location you're putting that IO. Of course, the different locations also come with some downsides. Sometimes the sternum, the humeral area are places where you can't get to because there's a crowd in that area doing other things. This is where the proximal tibia is really powerful. There's usually not a lot of people around the legs during that resuscitation. And of course, if you don't have the sternal IO device, that's not gonna be the spot that you're putting one of these in. While the proximal humerus is a great place, has a little better flow rate, there are some downsides there too. It's a little bit of a harder place to put your IO. You really need to internally rotate that shoulder, locate the humeral head, and then aim your IO at that spot. And depending on how much extra tissue the patient has, that may be less or more difficult. That's why the proximal tibia is often our go-to site. Typically, that's a much easier spot to find. If you go with the proximal humerus, one thing you have to make sure is to keep that shoulder internally rotated. Internally rotating it to find the humeral head for placement is important, but also maintaining that internal rotation or you will get dislodgement. So once you put that IO in, if you externally rotate that shoulder, it is much more likely that your IO will fall out. Cliff Reed published a nice little cadaveric study looking at exactly this. External rotation makes it more likely you bend the needle. And so if you need to move the arm away from the body, like say to put something like a chest tube in, you wanna keep that shoulder in internal rotation as you abduct it from the body. And of course, we'll drop a link in the show notes of the article so you can take a look at exactly what's going on here. As wonderful as the IO is, it is important to know what the limitations are. You can't really get the labs that you want off an IO. You can get blood, you can send it, but in general, the things that you really care about aren't gonna be accurate, and so you wanna actually get a stick to send labs off. The IO only has a single lumen, so that can sometimes limit how many meds we can give, but remember you can put multiple IOs in, and I have done that in the middle of a resuscitation. 
And probably the biggest limitation is dislodgement. These are not a secure line like if you sew in a CVL or an intro. And so I will use the IO for my initial resuscitation. Once I get to a place where either the patient's more stable or I've got a couple more bodies, then I'm going to want an intro or a central line because I can sew those in, making them a more secure spot for me to give my medications throughout the rest of that resuscitation. But despite those issues, the IO is extremely powerful in the acute resuscitation, whether that be cardiac arrest, traumatic hemorrhage, if it's a medical issue, especially in pediatric patients, the IO is extremely powerful. We should feel comfortable with using these, but also know that once the patient becomes more stable, let's switch it over to a line that's going to be more secure that we can continue to use for ongoing resuscitation. Thank you so much, Swami. A little bit more about IOs. The indications for IO are generally for patients who are in decompensated shock if peripheral IV attempts fail or if IV access takes longer than 90 seconds. Only 90 seconds. So the most common pitfall is to wait too long to place the IO. The sicker the patient, the more likely you'll consider placing an IO, as Swami was saying. There's really four limitations IO, some of which Swami touched on. Number one is you can't place an IO in a bone with a proximal fracture, a previous IO placement attempt, or any circulatory compromise proximal to the site. Number two, labs are not going to be accurate. So once your patient has been resuscitated with the IO, you can then do your usual blood draw. The third limitation of IOs is that dislodgement really is common. So in order to avoid dislodgement, it's really best to use the stabilizer that comes with the IO kit as soon as possible. If your kit does not have a stabilizer for whatever reason, stack lots of gauze on both sides of the IO and then tape it all down. The fourth limitation of IO is in little babies. IOs are only suitable for term infants who weigh more than three kilograms. So forget about using IOs in those tiny preemies. The other debate is which site is best. Now, there's essentially the proximal tibia and proximal humerus that are the most commonly used in the ED. In the military, they use sternal, but that scares the daylights out of me because there's a chance that I'll go through and through the bone, then into the pericardium, and then eek into the heart. So it's basically humerus or tibia. And I think tibia is the easiest to landmark and I'm usually putting these in when time is of the essence. So tibia is my go-to. And it's my go-to even though I know that you can get faster infusion rates at the humeral site. If you need high infusion rates, say for someone bleeding out, consider multiple IOs. Usually I'll go for bilateral tibia. And then if I need more IOs, then I'll go for humerus. And as Swami mentioned, one big disadvantage of the humerus site is that you need to keep the arm internally rotated the entire time that you need that IO to be working. So if you need blood draws or an IV, that arm is out of commission. And as soon as that arm is externally rotated, your IO is popping out. One other thing that's important to know about IOs is how best to choose the needle size. So there's three weight-based sizes, but most experts agree that it's better to choose the needle based on the estimated distance from skin to bone. In other words, the amount of soft tissue. It's better to overestimate than to underestimate the needle size based on this distance from skin to bone. 
All right, so that's all we're going to say about IOs for now. Next up, we have Tahara Bates' QI Corner, where she guides us through a case and looks at both caregiver and environmental systems factors contributing to the case so that we can think about how to prevent misses and bad outcomes for all our patients. Welcome back, everyone, and thanks for joining us for what I hope is going to be another great case. So let's get right to it. In today's tale from Janice General, it's another busy Saturday afternoon in the intake area. And the next chart you grab is a 28-year-old female with crampy pelvic pain. Oh, and she just had a positive home pregnancy test. So you think to yourself, wow, what a great bread and butter case. On assessment, this is a healthy G1P0 female in a long-term relationship with a wanted pregnancy. She appears well, if a little uncomfortable, but she has normal vital signs. She describes a history of crampy abdominal pain, not dissimilar to her periods, that's been going on for about two days, and there's no PV bleeding, spotting, or discharge. She has no GI or GU symptoms, and there's no fever. She does not have an IUD, has no prior history of PID or STI, and you confirm that, yes, this is in fact her first pregnancy, and there's been no fertility treatments. Or as you summarize all that in your note, she has no risk factors for ectopic pregnancy. Her cycles are still a bit irregular after coming off her birth control a few months ago, but allowing for that, she says her LMP was six weeks ago. On exam, she does have some mild pelvic tenderness, but she's not tender to the right or left lower quadrants, and there's no peritonitis. You complete a pelvic exam with the help of a chaperone, and note that there's no cervical motion tenderness and no adnexal tenderness. You also do a bedside ultrasound, including transverse and longitudinal views of the pelvis, as well as a sweep of the right upper quadrant, and you store all the images in your department's local archiving system. You do not see any free fluid, and there's no evidence of an IUP. Her blood work comes back and is largely unremarkable. Her serobena confirms that, yes, she is in fact pregnant. You do think about doing a formal ultrasound. But you know from talking to RADS about an earlier patient that they are really short-staffed, and it's going to be hours upon hours before you're able to get a formal ultrasound for this patient on a busy Saturday afternoon. This patient is super reliable, and she states she can easily follow up with her family doctor early next week, remembering again that this is Saturday, for a reassessment plus minus that formal ultrasound. So with that in mind... You discharge your home as abdominal pain NYD with good return to ED instructions and a plan to follow up with her GP. What did you miss? So this patient returns to the ED two days later, this time with worsening abdominal pain, and now she has some PV spotting. A formal ultrasound is completed, and it shows an ectopic pregnancy with free fluid visible in the pelvis. She's referred to obstetrics in stable condition and is taken to the OR and ultimately has a good clinical outcome. So you missed an ectopic pregnancy in this patient. But you were clearly thinking about it on your differential. So the question, as always, is why? There are two main clinical takeaways from this case. The first is to remember that an ectopic pregnancy can often present in an atypical manner. That classic triad of abdominal pain, missed menses, and vaginal bleeding is not sensitive. 
up to 25% of patients are going to lack that full triad and 10% may have no symptoms at all. So it is possible that in this case, the provider might have anchored on the lack of vaginal bleeding, which steered them away from a pregnancy-related cause of pain and towards a diagnosis of abdominal pain NYD. The second takeaway is to think about the beta. This patient's quantitative serum beta HCG was actually over 10,000, at which point you generally should be able to see something on an ultrasound. Remember the concept of the discriminatory zone. So that's the serum beta at which you should be able to see some evidence, not necessarily a heartbeat, but some evidence of an IUP on ultrasound. And for a transabdominal scan, the type we do, that level is roughly 6,000, depending on the source that you read. So to go back to our case, with a beta of over 10,000 and no evidence of an IUP on ultrasound, this patient actually had a pregnancy of unknown location, which should have triggered a different diagnostic algorithm for this provider, especially as this patient had pelvic pain. Now, you may be wondering, this seems like a pretty cut and dried, straightforward, missed diagnosis. So why did I share this with you? What's the QI angle? So let's go back to our framework for looking at cases like these. We kind of already covered the patient and provider factors. This was an ectopic in a patient with no risk factors and not a completely classic presentation. And the provider failed to register the significance of a beta well above the discriminatory zone with no evidence of IUP on ultrasound. Let's talk about that ultrasound. When the archival images were reviewed, it was noted that the provider had incorrectly interpreted them. And there was clear evidence of free fluid in both the pelvis and right upper quadrant. So this patient actually had a positive beta HCG with free fluid in the belly and no IUP on ultrasound. It's a no-brainer that for any of us in that situation, our next call is to obstetrics. So what do we do with that? Do we assume POCUS is inherently risky and never do it again? Of course not. There's even a few studies out there now that demonstrate a benefit with POCUS in terms of time to definitive management of a ruptured ectopic. But what this case demonstrates is the need for some type of quality assurance program for POCUS or at least opportunities for providers to regularly assess and update their skills. This may look different in different departments, but the bottom line is that we are using POCUS more than ever to make clinical decisions, the same way we use other imaging studies. But whereas most departments have some mechanism in place to review radiology discrepancies, similar quality checks for POCUS may not be as widely in practice yet. And that's something that bears thinking about. So in summary, what are our takeaways from this case? Takeaway number one is that ectopic pregnancies do not always present with the classic triad, and there is no combination of history, physical, and blood work that definitively rules out an ectopic. So make sure you go that extra step to convince yourself that this is not what you're dealing with. Takeaway number two is remember that a high beta with no evidence of IUP equals a pregnancy of unknown location. And you need formal imaging to find said pregnancy. 
Now, if you can't get that imaging right away, that's okay. But remember that these are the patients that are going to need that close interim follow-up and serial betas until things declare themselves or you can get that ultrasound. Now, ectopic pregnancies can be tricky. So if you're interested in a truly great review on all things ectopic, check out Dr. Katherine Varner's Best Cases Ever. It's episode number 68 on EM cases, and the reference, as always, is in the show notes. Finally, from a systems point of view, consider what type of quality assurance program you have in place in your department for POCUS scans. You might start with something just as simple as POCUS rounds, you know, or maybe some informal CME sessions by the POCUS experts in your group. But consider working up to an archive and review system that's paired with a mechanism to feedback any discrepancies. It's that second part, the how you manage discrepancies part, where you may really see the value of a QA program for your department. In fact, the case that this episode was inspired by was actually identified not through the patient's return visit, but via the local POCUS QA program, when the discrepancy around the presence of free fluid was caught. And if you actually look at the Kate POCUS guidelines from a few years ago, there is a recommendation that departments incorporate some type of QA program. And there's good evidence out there now that this can be done successfully in high volume community centers. This is not just an academic site thing. But the most important thing overall is just to find something that works with your local context. At the end of the day, none of us would feel great about this case. But we should remember that these cases and return visits in general, they're opportunities, not just to improve our own practice, but to look at some of the root causes for why things happen the way they did. But as our understanding of patient safety and systems improvement evolves, we now recognize that it's these cases, not the big and bad ones, that are going to offer the richest opportunities for fixing things. So until next time, keep thinking about that system and remember, a mistake is never just a mistake. A word from our sponsor, Metricade, the experts on scheduling systems. Since 2015, I've been using Metricade, the incredible self-scheduling system that has made my life and the lives of my colleagues so much easier. Metricade can really help minimize the drawbacks of shift work we all know so well by not only ensuring equitable distribution of shifts, but also integrating circadian rhythm-friendly recovery time into their algorithms. They minimize my sleep deprivation, which allows me to be a better EM doc on shift. I can take better care of my patients and still have energy left after my shifts to enjoy other aspects of my life. Check out metricade.com slash emcases for more details on how this awesome scheduling system works. Next up, we've got Sarah Reed, our pediatric EM expert. Dr. Reed isn't only a great podcaster, but a fantastic speaker at conferences. So I cherry-picked a few minutes from her incredible talk from the last EM Cases Summit, which was sort of a potpourri of PEDS EM updates. So here's some highlights from EM Cases Summit 2021 on oxygen saturation monitoring for kids with bronchiolitis and on treatment of gastroesophageal reflux in infants. All right, so hands up who has seen some bronchiolitis. We are just inundated. I don't know about you guys, but one little thing just to remind us about a little kind of polishing about our um, management of bronchiolitis. We know that 
bronchiolitis is the leading reason why a baby would need to be admitted to hospital in Canada. And we know that that admission rate has really gone up over the last number of years. And that is likely one of the drivers of that increased admission rate is uh, continuous O2 SAT monitoring. So, you know, in the guidelines, we accept SATs down to 90 in this condition without having to give supplemental oxygen. And you know, we know from studies looking at babies who are at home, who are getting SAT monitoring at home with bronchiolitis, that they have tons of DSATs. Like this is part of the pathophysiology of this illness. And so what happens is if you have a baby come in and you slap a continuous O2 SAT monitor on them, they will DSAT in your department, like 100%. They'll fall asleep, they bend their neck or, you know, kind of obstruct a little bit as their mom's moving them around and they'll DSAT to 86. And then you'll, then you'll be thinking, oh gosh, like now I absolutely need to admit this baby for these transient dips um, that we know are common in this illness. And so all that to say, CPS, American Academy of Pediatrics, choosing wisely, they all kind of dance around this. But I think what we need to just recognize is that in a stable, well-appearing, mild to moderate bronchiolitis patient who does not need supplemental oxygen, spot checks are fine. So doing it at triage, you know, if you want to check it one more time, fine, but you shouldn't have them on the continuous app monitor. Totally different for the sicker baby, the one that needs oxygen or ventilatory support, the one that's getting admitted in the acute phase of the illness and those sicker babies, for sure, they need to be monitored closely. So all to say, stop using continuous app monitoring in the stable infant with bronchiolitis. So for mild to moderate stable bronchiolitis, generally no oxygen saturation monitor is required because that'll just lead to needless admissions. Now, Dr. Reed's going to riff on gastroesophageal reflux in infants. Okay, and I don't know how many of you would be actually doing this, but this is something that I've done a lot. So I'm. this is just a, a reminder for all of us. So, you know, let's say you have a little eight-week-old, baby spits every feed, uh, parents are exhausted and find the baby cries quite a bit and sometimes arches and seems uncomfortable, but the baby looks beautiful for you, growing well, completely normal physical exam. There are no red flags to suggest that the baby has pyloric stenosis or a malrotation of volvulus. Like you're not worried about the baby, but the parents are like, please fix this. And I think we've, we've tended to pull out our prescription pads to, to prescribe, uh, you know, ranitidine um, or, you know, lensoprazole. And we have to be aware that there is not good evidence for this. This, these medications do decrease the acidity Uh, acidity of the reflux, but do not have any impact on crying. It's really off-label. They are associated with some downside. There appears to be increased lower respiratory tract infections and GI infections in babies who are on anti-reflux meds. So not totally benign and probably not actually that effective. So the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition which is like the big group that does all the guidelines for GI stuff uh, for us, have this uh, GERD algorithm here for baby. You know, it just reminds us, do the history and physical, make sure that they don't have pyloric stenosis or malrotation with volvulus or some other bad thing that's causing them to have uh, this vomiting. And if you're happy that it's GERD, the first thing is to really do those motherhood things like don't overfeed, you know, uh, continue breastfeeding on demand. You can, you know, thicken feeds for babies who are fed by bottle. There's commercially available thickeners. There's, uh, we sometimes add rice cereal. So there's a few things to try. And if the baby hasn't improved on those things, then we do a two to four week trial off cow's milk protein. So that's with a hydrolyzed formula if they're bottle fed or mom going off cow's milk if she's nursing. And then 
this recommendation is, you know, then you get them to see PHGI, which I kind of chuckle at because it would be really hard to do that where I work. And I'm sure many, most people who are at this conference probably agree. Maybe you actually get them to see a pediatrician depending on where you work, but maybe we are actually the one then who's actually doing the prescription for the antacid medicine, like famotidine or lansoprazole, a limited trial, four to eight weeks with a good chat with the parents that it may not be magical. But I just to remind us that there's a bunch of things for us to do first, and we really need to normalize for parents that this is like a normal thing. It's not a disease. Most babies spit up more or less, and they grow out of it. I love those two quick segments because they're perfect examples of what not to do. You know, so often we're talking about what to do in emergency medicine, but so much of our specialty is actually knowing when to hold back. Now, there's a lot more where that came from. We have a few selected videos of the EM Cases Summit talks on the EM Cases website. Just go to the navigation bar on the homepage and choose EM Cases Summit in the drop-down menu under Videos. And yes, the next EM Cases Summit is February 2nd to 4th. You can tune in from anywhere in the world and tickets go on sale November 2nd at emcasesummit.com. All the details will be there soon. All right, moving on. Ever wonder how useful checking rectal tone is in your assessment for cauda equina syndrome? I certainly have. And patients probably do as well when they come in with back pain and suddenly you're telling them you need to insert your finger up their rectum. Here's Britt Long to give us an evidence-based answer on how useful checking rectal tone for your assessment in cauda equina syndrome is. A couple months ago, I had a patient with back pain, but this wasn't your normal back pain patient. She had pain radiating down both legs, bilateral paresthesias, changes with sensation in the perianal area, and difficulty urinating. The post-void residual was just over 300 milliliters. I called the neurosurgeon and explained my concerns. There was a moment of silence, and then he asked one question. What was the rectal exam? I told him that I felt my history and exam were concerning for cauda equina syndrome. I didn't feel a rectal exam would change my decision-making, but I would be happy to obtain one if he wanted. All he said was call me when you've actually completed the full evaluation with the rectal exam. Not the best interaction, and after this discussion, I decided to do some digging into the rectal exam for cauda equina syndrome. First, let's look at some anatomy. The spinal cord ends with the conus medullaris at the L1 or L2 vertebral level. It then continues as nerve roots, which look like a horse's tail, hence the name cauda equina. These nerve roots include the ascending and descending nerve roots from L2 all the way to the coccygeal segments. They control lower limb movement, lower limb sensation, bladder control, external anal sphincter control, external genitalia and perianal sensation, and coccygeal sensation. Any compression of these nerve roots within the vertebral canal can cause cauda equina syndrome. That's the anatomy. Let's look at the digital rectal exam and evaluation of rectal tone. There are several parts to the actual rectal exam. The first step is to look at the skin around the anus. The second step is to evaluate the superficial anal reflex or the anal wink. 
This involves touching the skin close to the anus with your gloved finger. This touch will stimulate the pudendal nerve, which is going to be followed by an integrated response by the S2 to S4 segments that results in contraction of the external anal sphincter. The final part is what we call the digital rectal exam. The digital rectal exam primarily tests the S2 to S4 function. If you do feel what you think is reduced tone or even no tone, that can be concerning for decreased S2 to S4 function. The problem is that the rectal exam is not a great test in evaluating for cauda equina syndrome. First, our fingers just are not accurate when it comes to assessing rectal tone. One study published in 2015 looked at provider ability to accurately detect decreased rectal tone on a simulator. There was an overall correct assessment of 64%, not reassuring. This assessment also has a wide range of inter-rater reliability. Even if we were 100% accurate in assessing rectal tone, the most important issue is that the sensitivity of reduced anal tone or anal reflexes is nowhere close to 100%. It's less than 50% when compared to MRI. Some of the better data comes from a meta-analysis that looked at the accuracy and sensitivity of the digital rectal exam in patients with confirmed cauda equina syndrome. Overall, six studies with 741 patients were included. When the studies were pooled together, authors found that the digital rectal exam with anal tone had a sensitivity that ranged between 23 to 53%. Anal squeeze had a sensitivity of 29%, and there was a sensitivity of 38% for anal reflexes. Based on these sensitivities, authors state that the digital rectal exam should not be used in any clinical setting. Now, there are multiple limitations with this meta-analysis. Five of the six included studies were retrospective and at high risk or unclear risk of bias. I do agree with the author's conclusions for the most part. You can't use the digital rectal exam to rule out cauda equina syndrome, and it's just not a reliable test. However, if you do end up performing a rectal exam and you feel decreased tone, that potentially could be concerning for cauda equina syndrome. Based on all of this information, it sounds like the rectal exam really isn't going to help us too much. So are there some other signs that are suggestive of cauda equina syndrome? A study published in 2021 found that bilateral leg pain, sensory loss in a dermatomal pattern, and absent bilateral ankle and knee jerks were all suggestive of cauda equina syndrome. This same study found that, yet again, the rectal exam was not helpful in diagnosis. All right, so where does all this information leave us? If you're concerned about cauda equina syndrome, perform a history and exam focused on function of the L2 through the sacral nerve roots. Ask about changes in urination, like retention and incontinence, changes in defecation like constipation or incontinence, sexual function, and then also ask about saddle or anal sensory changes. If you find abnormalities in any of these along with bilateral sciatica, loss of the ankle and knee reflexes, or focal weakness, you need to be concerned. The big takeaway 
is don't use your rectal exam to rule out cauda equina syndrome. Thank you so much, Dr. Long. Before we get to our last EM quick hit, just a reminder that through the subscribe button on the EM Cases website, you can not only sign up for our email updates that come out every two weeks, but also our Q&A Pearl of the Week, which is a one-minute read asking a specific clinical question and giving you a practical pearl. Also, you can sign up there for Just the Nuggets emails. If you don't know what Just the Nuggets emails are, Just the Nuggets are essentially the show notes from each main episode podcast divided up into tight little packages of nuggets that are delivered to you starting about 10 days after each main episode is released. Every couple of days, you'll receive another nugget until you've got all the nuggets from that episode. Usually it's about five nuggets. It's our way of helping you maximize your learning from the podcast through multimodal spaced repetition. Again, just hit the burgundy red subscribe button on the EM Cases website to access all the stuff for free. You can opt out anytime. All right, last but not least, we have the best of CGEM, Just the Facts, with Hans Rosenberg, this time on a topic that we don't discuss often enough, withdrawal of life-sustaining therapy. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to a critical care and emergency medicine trained physician, Dr. Ariel Hendon, and we'll be chatting about a very important topic, withdrawal of life-sustaining therapy. Welcome, Ariel. Thanks. Happy to be here. So first of all, so that we're all on the same page, can you tell me what exactly do you mean by withdrawal of life-sustaining therapy? These are treatments that we see commonly, like mechanical ventilation, which could be invasive or non-invasive, dialysis, and vasopressors. And a key distinction with life-sustaining therapy is that these treatments don't actually restore organ function. They just buy us time to treat the patient's underlying issue and hopefully reverse their disease process. And so withdrawal of life-sustaining therapy, which is a tongue twister, and to which I'll probably refer as WLST, is the process of discontinuing these treatments once there's been a change in the patient's course that makes ongoing life-sustaining treatment incongruous with their goals of care. When I think about withdrawal of life-sustaining therapy, I usually think of this in the context of somebody that would be performing it like an internist or perhaps, you know, uh, an intensivist like yourself. But like a lot of things, I've probably kind of thinking about this the wrong way. And also emergency medicine has evolved to the point where we have a lot more of these conversations and a lot more of these types of patients. In what context would withdrawal of life-sustaining therapy occur in the emergency department? Yeah, so as I alluded to, WLST is something I talk about with families and patients frequently in the ICU. Usually when continuing these often invasive treatments isn't expected to achieve an outcome the patient would actually accept at the end of the day. And this can be a difficult thing to know and to address in the emergency department for many reasons. Um, And to be clear, if there's questions about the patient's clarity of their goals of care or their prognosis, then it probably is most appropriate to continue life-sustaining therapy for a trial of therapy and time. But there are some situations in which WLST might actually be appropriate in the emergency department. For example, if you have a patient where you intubate them post unwitnessed cardiac arrest, and it soon becomes very clear that this type of resuscitation is actually not something they ever would have wanted or are likely to benefit from, then this is a patient for whom, if you have family available and everyone's very clear about their goals of care, you might actually decide to initiate WLST in the emergency department. All right. So that makes a lot of sense. Now, I guess to the crux of the matter is how do we actually perform 
WLST in the emergency department? I really want to stress that WLST does not mean we're withdrawing care. Really, it's far from it. Withdrawal of life-sustaining therapy actually can entail fairly intensive nursing care for symptoms that can arise at the end of life. So you still, as for any intensive procedure, want to brief your team about what to anticipate and plan for management-wise. And before you initiate WLST, it's important that patients and their families are offered a conversation about organ donation as appropriate. And then the process of WLST is going to differ depending on the type of invasive treatments the patient is undergoing. We've included reminders in our article's infographic about how to do things like discontinuing mechanical ventilation if you have a patient on a ventilator, deactivating ICDs, and medications for pain and symptom management as they arise. So the process of WLST is going to differ depending on the type of invasive treatments the patient is undergoing. It may be as simple as if you have a patient in septic shock who's on vasopressors, where, like I said, goals of care are clear and they do not want to be transferred to ICU for ongoing invasive management, then you wean off of the vasopressors and treat any symptoms at end of life, such as pain or dyspnea that may occur with the typical medications that we would, such as opioids and benzodiazepines as needed. So if you've intubated a patient using a paralytic, you have to ensure that enough time has elapsed since you gave the medication that the patient is spontaneously breathing and no longer paralyzed to any degree for when you actually extubate them. You'll use the same medications for any dyspnea and any signs of pain. And typically you would extubate the patient to room air once they're comfortable. For patients who have an ICD or a pacemaker, there are typically no reasons to worry about a pacemaker. But for an ICD, as the patient becomes more hypoxemic and potentially more acidemic towards the end of life, they may have shock go off. So it's pretty simple. You can place a magnet over the ICD to avoid unintended shocks towards the end of life. A lot of the end-of-life care is similar to what we would do for patients who don't have these invasive supports, with, like I mentioned, some small modifications for the tubes and lines that may be in place. And we have some more details on our infographic with specifications for these invasive treatments. All right. So that's some excellent information and likely something that any of us emergency physicians can perform in the emergency department. Well, that about wraps it up for this month's EM Quick Hits. We learned about some limitations of IOs, how not to miss ectopic pregnancy, why continuous O2Sat monitoring for mild to moderate bronchiolitis should not be done, why we should not jump to prescribing meds in reflux in babies, how it's a third-line intervention, the near uselessness of rectal exam for diagnosing called equina syndrome, and some tips on withdrawing life-sustaining therapy in the ED. Our next main episode is going to feature some highlights from this year's CAPE conference. Part one is going to include all the new stuff on working up infants with fever and also Paul Atkinson and Grant Innes on how we need to redefine what emergency medicine is. It was one of the most intensely thought-provoking interviews I've ever done. So until next time, take it easy. Take it easy.